Hey, I'm Ellen from Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, I'm Cody from Edmonton, Alberta. I'm Eric from Nashville. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. This story is going to sound fake, but it's real. When Christopher Guest was trying to make his first movie, The Big Picture, he had to pitch it out to a Hollywood executive. And the head of the studio, no names will be mentioned, uh, this was a late-in-the-afternoon meeting, and he fell asleep during the pitch. (laughs) And I I thought, uh, wow, Uh, I thought, you know, not to be arrogant, but I'm kind of good at this. I can do voices, and I can sort of make this maybe interesting, but apparently not. So he was asleep. Then he woke up, and I continued. And then he fell asleep again. And he woke up, and this is completely true. He said, um, let's do it. Anyway, uh, Guest decided to go with a different studio. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I talked to Christopher Guest about his signature style of filmmaking, unscripted faux documentaries that parody very specific subcultures. And we'll talk about music. It's a common thread in his films. He explored folk music in A Mighty Wind and community musical theater in Waiting for Guffman. And the songs in those movies sound totally authentic. Bad parody music is one of the worst things on the face of the earth to me. And so to write original music that could be considered uh, possible, that's what we were aiming to do. Plus, we'll talk about his new TV show on HBO. It's called Family Tree. Then stay tuned for my conversation with writer Dan Kennedy. He's the host of the Moth Storytelling Podcast and has a new novel out. It's called American Spirit. The book's about a man who comes to realize that he isn't going to live forever. And you often think of that phrase, at least I do, that we should be living like it's, you know, our last day, you know. But really, when you take that to heart, you make quite a mess of things. Plus, the AV Club tells us what they're listening to this week. And Nick Krill from the Spinto Band reveals the song that changed his life. All that and more coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Christopher Guest has made a career of taking the profoundly absurd and grounding it as deeply as he possibly can. His films, for the most part, have been comedies in the form of documentaries. His earlier movies, like Waiting for Guffman, feature big characters interacting in big, hilarious ways. There's still big absurdity in his work these days, but in films like the folk music parody A Mighty Wind, it's become a a bit more contemplative. His new show on HBO is called Family Tree. The star, Chris O'Dowd, is a bit of an aimless sad sack. He's recently lost his job and been dumped. A box of family heirlooms inherited from a great aunt sends him on a quest to learn about his family history and ultimately to learn about himself. In this scene from the show, Tom Chadwick, who's played by Chris O'Dowd, is doing some sleuthing on some old family photos and artifacts he's inherited. The historian Neville St. Aubrey, played by Christopher Fairbank, delivers some surprising news about one of Tom's ancestors. The discovery I've made is that the man in the photograph that you showed me the other day was none other than Prince George, the Duke of Cambridge. Shut the front door. Yes. Harry was a royal. That makes a lot of sense. Unfortunately, it is not your great-grandfather, Harry Chadwick. It's not? No. Why did, why did Victoria have the photo? Because your great-grandfather, Harry Chadwick, took the photograph. Harry was a photographer. He was indeed. Oh. And he is in the catalogue of photographers that worked from that studio at that time. And I am pleased to be able to show you a picture of your great-grandfather. Oh, great. Harry Chadwick. Yes. There he is. Your great-grandfather. It's Chinese, man. Yes. Chris Guest, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. So I, I want to start I want to start actually by talking to you about your theater career because you didn't go into uh, you were mostly working in the theater for the first ten years or so of your adult life, something like that. Yes, for a while, yeah. Um did you think that you were just gonna be were you just gonna be a theater actor? 
I don't know if I was thinking much about it at all. I was just uh, having fun. I don't think I had any uh, goal in mind at the time. Did you? When did you um, start doing things with the National Lampoon? Uh, the first year of the Lampoon, uh, National Lampoon, was 1970. It was in that year, October, I think, 1970. You were also in the cast of Lemmings, right? Well, I co-wrote Lemmings with Tony Hendra, and Doug Kenny, and a couple of other people. And uh, I co-wrote the music and was in the show for almost a year. Yeah. Tell me, uh, tell me first of all what Lemmings was, what, what it was all about. Lemmings, uh, for those of you who, were, uh, who remember, there was, a, there was a festival that some people have heard of called Woodstock. I don't know if, how many people have heard of that. It was a <laughs> music festival. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it was in 69. This, we wrote this show, and I think it was 73, but I'm, I don't remember exactly. And it was a parody, I guess, of that time, I would say. And uh, John Belushi, Chevy Chase, and I were in the show with some other people that you may or may not know, or may not know, I should just have said. Do not know, I should have actually said. Uh, And uh, it was the first time that anyone had done, to my knowledge, uh, had the cast playing all the instruments. We were playing the music, essentially. Uh, It wasn't really a conventional music musical where there's an orchestra or a group of musicians and the cast sing. We were actually playing and singing the music, the first half being the uh, festival itself, and then there were some sketches afterwards that would change on a rotating basis. What did you think was funny about that generation at the time, in 1973? Well, the the, the title Lemmings kind of says it all, hopefully. Um, these were people uh, en masse just being drawn to this uh, to this festival. No one knew it was going to rain and uh, all the rest, obviously. But um, there, there's this notion that all these people just kind of blind, blindly kind of stumbled their way into this field and then, you know, I don't know. I, I, I remember thinking at the time, I was doing a play at the time. I was doing a play called Little Murders, a Jules Pfeiffer play, and thinking, uh, I don't think I'd want to go to that. It sounds like it's going to be there's something weird about that. Of course, that was kind of blasphemous at the time, I guess. Things um, things in the National Lampoon, I mean, the National Lampoon generated a, a bevy of huge stars, along with the Second City in, in comedy. Like, most of the folks that um, rose to comedy superstardom late 70s, early 80s, came from one of those two sources, and, mm. and in many cases, both of those two sources. Mm. Do you disagree? Oh, I hadn't thought about it, but it's good that you mentioned <laughs> it, I guess. Um, when your friends and compatriots were suddenly becoming uh, movie stars... Did you think that seemed like a good idea for you? Like, did, was it of interest to you to also be a movie star? Well, I'm I'm not a movie star. There were there were people who become are people who become movie stars. I was in movies. I made have made movies. Um, there are pitfalls to to that world, and some people don't uh, <laughs> don't know that. Um, and it's sad, really sad. It's tragic, actually. And uh, I think um, beginning in the early 70s, there were people who I knew and who others knew, certainly, were headed right for the cliff. And uh, that was it was only a question of time. It wasn't a question of whether that was going to happen. So uh, this is a recurring thing in, in, in movies and music, obviously. This is not a new idea, but to see it, happen in front of in front of you uh, and to know that there really is no there's no way that's going to change is is quite sad it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne i'm speaking with the filmmaker christopher guest i want to play uh, a scene from uh, this is spinal tap from 1984 um this is obviously a uh, if folks haven't seen this is spinal tap it's a pro documentary that um looks at the world of uh, the world of heavy rock and metal and the uh, ridiculous is built in, ridiculousness is built into that. Um, uh, directed by Rob Reiner, and um, you play Nigel Tufnell, a character that you had actually done before Spinal Tap for a few years. 
Um, and in this scene, you're you're playing the piano and and talking. I think I think you're talking to to Rob Reiner in this scene. It's a, it's a bit of a departure from the kind of thing you normally play. Yeah, well, it's part of a uh, a trilogy, really, a musical trilogy that I'm doing in D minor, which I always find is really the saddest of all keys. Really, I don't know why, but it makes people weep instantly to play a. It's a horn part. It's very pretty. Yeah, just simple lines intertwining. You know, very much like I'm really influenced by Mozart and Bach, and it's sort of in between though. It's really, it's like a Mach piece, really. It's, what do you call this? Well, this piece is called uh, "Lick My Love Pump." Um, what was your exposure to uh, to metal before you made Spinal Tap? <laughs> You, by metal, you mean metal music as opposed yeah. to just... <laughs> I uh, mean, you'd certainly, you'd probably sat metal. down on yeah. like a bleacher. Right. Well, yes, I, I had somewhat, although not that often, come to think of it. That's a different interview. <laughs> uh, hmm. Well... Uh, you didn't know that this is a metallurgy program? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm finding out. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Metal. Well... I guess I would. I, I'd listen to different types of music. I had with Michael McCain, Harry. We'd we'd listen to all kinds of music. What was happening in the early '80s was was a series of. Uh, they were beginning to do these videos that were very pompous, uh, and typically they would be done by metal bands that had these fanciful kind of storylines, usually involving uh, unicorns and castles and women without tops and. It just occurred to us that, uh, amongst other things, that that might be a good area to um, uh, observe, shall I say? Did so you? We, we did. Then we did it. Were there th- were there things about uh, about that world that you enjoyed? Well, uh, you know, we've this is now 2013. We've been playing concerts for 30 years. We've uh, gone on big tours and played in massive uh, stadiums, and it's fun to play that kind of music. Although we are playing our version of it, uh, but we do two-hour shows, and the lyrics are what's off. The music is kind of true to that. So there is something fun about standing on a stage in front of, well, the the biggest crowd was one hundred and thirty thousand, which was a few years ago in Glastonbury, and there's something very empowering about that. Hey, did you ever been to a big like? Had you ever been to like a, a Judas Priest show yes. or a Sabbath show or yes. something like that? Had, yes. But I have to confess, it was in the uh, it was in the line of duty. I mean, we were, we were going to see those shows to prepare our uh, project. Who did you see? We saw a Priest, as we as the fans like to call it. See, they shorten. Mm-hmm. They don't have sure. to say Judas. But... Right. Well, and. Sabbath. No, I, I didn't actually see Sabbath in, in person. Again, Black Sabbath, Sabbath. Uh, but heard, you know, recordings, which are records. And um, yeah, I mean, I'd heard a lot of a lot of that. So it's uh, it, it doesn't take that long to kind of distill it into what we were hoping to do. I guess the 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 four of you sort of in part made this movie together as i mentioned it was directed by mm-hmm. rob reiner mm-hmm. um when it was done did you think that it was a success uh well what i started doing with that project was writing down what i thought of it before anyone had seen it and i thought this is the only way to be intellectually honest about um, what we've just done. So I wrote down on in a diary or some paper that that I really had fun, that I thought it was good. I liked it. And tell me why you started doing that. Well, I thought I, I've known some people uh, who uh, I, I ran into a friend once who, who had worked on a film and I said, oh, how's it going? He said, oh, it was just awful. He said, it's just this piece of you know. I said, oh, that's too bad. The film came out about three months later. Huge hit. I ran into him again. I said, how's it going? He said, well, the movie's just so great. You know, it's just uh, it's a fantastic film. I thought, hmm, it's 
It wasn't a few months ago. That's interesting that it would have changed. Uh, and I thought that's that's a very human thing is to have someone's mind bent because of the public perception. So I decided to do the other thing myself. It's funny. I, I, the, I, I didn't expect you to give me an example that went – in that direction. Okay. What did you expect? Let me <laughs> Maybe I can help you. I I expected you to tell me if you know when you started to give an example, I assumed that the example would be something that someone enjoyed making and thought was good that was then their then that their good feelings were destroyed uh, by Okay, I'll I'll, by do, I'll do that story. I'll, t- I'll make it I'll make it that story if that's what you like. I ran into this guy, a friend. <laughs> And it, no, that's actually really – I'm not saying that's the basis of completely in, in terms of what I do. But I, I started – in fact, I started doing this business at when we made TAP was prior to, to that other situation. So. I, mean, I mean it's funny to think – to frame something in your mind or for your friend to have framed this in his mind and then for you to set up a sort of defense against um, – thinking that something that you felt was bad was good, <laughs> like defending against uh, imp- your feelings about something improving? Well, I, I think they're, the only real thing is how one feels about what they're doing. There is The other business is all make-believe because um, th- there different critics can say something. And a, a friend of mine said uh, – this is not the same friend, unfortunately. Uh, an, another friend once said uh, – he, he was so depressed. He'd gotten some bad reviews on a film. I said, well, why don't you just not read them? He said, well, you should read the good ones. I said, well, I think you're missing the point because you, you're, it's a yo-yo. You know, you, someone says you're brilliant and then you feel good and they say you're a piece of crap and then you feel bad. So you're at the mercy of that and actors are. I made a film about it called For Your Consideration uh, a few years ago about the power of, of, of people being told they may get an award and the rest of it. And it's all the same stuff, essentially. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the actor and director, Christopher Guest, about his early career. Guest went on to develop a signature filmmaking style. His movies are unscripted faux documentaries about very specific subcultures. For instance, prestigious dog shows in Best in Show, the world of community theater in Waiting for Guffman, and Academy Award hopefuls in For Your Consideration. I actually want to play a clip from a movie that you co-wrote called The Big Picture. Ah, yes. I think it's. I, I think there are some of the some of the finest moments of Hollywood satire are, are in this movie, and this is a scene where M- Martin Short is a. Um, it's like an agent. And he's not like an agent. He's he an agent. Is, yeah, he is an agent. Sure. And he's uh, he's meeting with a new talent, and it is just a a classic Hollywood moment. Right, so Kevin Bacon. Yeah, let's take a listen. Look, Nick, I'm not going to bull you. I don't know you. I don't know your work, but I think that you are a very, very talented young man, and I'm never wrong about these things. Excuse me, Keith. Mm. Yes. Could I have another Cointreau and Sodi? And could you send an almond torte over to the gentleman in the white suit in the corner? Certainly. Look, Nick, I'm not going to you. Because it's a waste of time, and then it becomes like that thing. <laughs> it's, I mean, it is, it, it, it's, if it wasn't so funny, it would be impossible to watch. Um... Well, yeah, I guess, yeah. Uh, that was the first film I did, first film I directed. I co-wrote it with Michael McCain and Michael Varhol. And uh, it's oddly not based on anything that I went through. Um, I, I didn't go to film school. I, I guess it's probably not too late. I Probably if I could apply somewhere, I might think about that next couple of years. But I didn't go to film. I didn't go through what Kevin Bacon went through in that whole uh, story, uh, but I've been in show business, and so I've been in in contact with situations that were quite odd. In fact, it, I had a pitch, one of very few pitches I've ever had in my life, where uh, I started to pitch this film, in fact, and the head of the studio, no names will be mentioned, uh, this was a late in the afternoon meeting, and he fell asleep. <laughs> 
during the pitch. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I thought uh, wow. Uh, I thought, you know, I'm not to be arrogant, but I'm kind of good at this. I can do voices and I can sort of make this maybe interesting, but apparently not. So he was asleep. Then he woke up and I continued. And then he <laughs> fell asleep again. And he woke up. And this is completely true. He said, um, let's do it. <laughs> So I left the meeting uh, and I said, okay, there's something wrong here. There's something really, really wrong because he didn't hear half of it. And he said, let's do it. And I called uh, my agent. I said, this is – I'm not going to do this even though they say – he said, what are you talking about? I said, because there's something wrong with this. We ultimately went to a different studio. I could have said, sure, great, shake hands. I just thought this is crazy and no one would ever believe that if you – if you uh, did that scene in a film, no one would believe that. They'd say, well, this is just stupid, broad, stupid scene. What, what did the other people in the room do? Well, I was, it was just the head of the studio and Michael Varhol and, and me. That was it. Yeah. We just looked at each other and it was quite shocking. You know. So anyway, we went to a different place, ultimately made the movie. There were a lot of adventures in that the studio that we went to, David Putnam eventually said, let's make this movie. He was fired six months later. A woman took over and thought the movie was about her. I said, well, we sure, except we wrote this two years ago. So obviously it's not. And now that was that battle, which was quite surreal. Yeah. Well, I, I can't imagine that you would have a, a lot of Hollywood executives who didn't think the movie was about them. Well, that's a, that's a thing about parody that's true. I think when we did Spinal Tap, many bands came up to us and said, oh, that was so great because I'll know who exactly that is. And it was always wrong because it was either the other person or them. It was this ego thing of, uh, you got me right, mate. You got well, – yeah, good, except it's not you. So that's a human uh, – thing, I guess, where people imagine because of their ego that uh, if something becomes talked about, that that's about them. Stick around. After a break, I'll talk with Christopher Guest about his new show on HBO, Family Tree. Plus, our friends at the AV Club tell us about some music worth picking up. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, this is Biz. And I'm Teresa. And we host a new show about the epic fails and genius moments of being a mom. How do you take care of a baby and still find time to moisturize your tattoos? Join us every week to find out. And remember, you don't have to be a bad mom to be one bad mother. Subscribe for free on iTunes or go to MaximumFun.org. Hey guys, want to hear extended versions of the interviews on this week's show? Go to MaximumFun.org to find them. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Christopher Guest. Music is a common theme in his work. There's heavy metal in This Is Spinal Tap, community musical theater in Waiting for Guffman, and folk music in A Mighty Wind. Well, I I have to say that when um, Waiting for Guffman came out, I was uh, 15 years old and in theater school. Sorry to hear that, but go ahead. And um, so I, I want to buy. I, I, you know, it it touched me very deeply, and I I want to play a clip from uh, Waiting for Guffman, which was your film about a, a, a community theater director and a and a group of community community theater actors putting right. on a musical about their town. Um, it, the the town in question is Blaine, Missouri, and it is the stool capital of the United States. Uh, known for stool manufacture. And this is a song from the, the musical that's the grand finale of the film. It's called Stool Boom. Um, I I love the musical in this to the extent that I, in the Napster era, downloaded the promo only soundtrack so I could hear 
few of the songs, like This Bulging River, which yes. didn't make the final cut. Yeah. I'm really adding myself as a waiting for a Guffman nerd here. Mm-hmm. But um, at what point in the writing process of the film um, did you start to write the music? Hmm. I'm not sure I remember. Uh, it may have been... I don't think I remember which happened first. The songs were written uh, in pairs, different pairs. Michael McKean and I wrote um, A Penny for Your Thoughts. Harry Shear and I wrote that last song. Uh, and uh, Michael wrote by himself This Bulging River, which is one of the great s- songs, uh, w- which we performed live in our acoustic tour we did a few years ago. Uh, and the others were different pairings, but I, I don't know if I could tell you. I guess we started blocking out, Eugene Levy and I blocking out the story, and then the songs kind of filtered in, I guess. Did you, I mean, how, what did the three of you talk about when you were trying to figure out what the tone of these songs should be? Because on the one hand, these are parodic, and, um, you know, there's something, there's something a little sad and pathetic about the desperation that drives these songs and the and the lack of skill that that goes into them. On the other hand, these are also the heroes of your film right. and in many ways their drive and um, right. passion is very admirable and it's also going to be on screen for a long time. Well, it, it, what the, the trick is, I, I guess, is that with any music parody is that the, the music itself has to be engaging because if they're just stupid songs, then it's the whole thing falls apart. And the tone that was set when Eugene and I uh, um, were writing the outlines for this, there's no dialogue written in the film at all, um, was that these people were very earnest, they were deluded, but uh, that the premise was going to be this was the best they could do. So you don't want to see people uh, winking and pretending to do bad songs. Bad parody music is one of the worst things in, on the face of the earth to me. And so to write original music that could be considered uh, possible if, if you came across that in a small theater, that's what we were aiming to do. And so I think – and then there's the illusion that this goes on for the length of a show, but it's very short. It may be 20 minutes or something tops, the whole thing. So I think that each song has to be a, a quarter the length and yet still convey uh, that. Do you feel like you got the balance right in that first film of the um, sort of uh, absurdity and relative talentlessness of these characters in, in, the, in their goal of achieving this dream with the fact that, you know, you don't want to have, um, you know, you don't want to... Uh, you, know, you don't want to pick on powerless people, right? Well, I don't. I'm not. I'm, I don't think I'm the one to answer that question. I guess it would be people watching the the movie. The hope was to do something where you rooted for those people. The, the character I played, Corky St. Clair, was a, a person who didn't have talent or or intelligence, but I was hoping that people would be drawn to him because he was kind of a sweet, well-meaning person. You know, he wasn't a bad person. And that was the what we were trying to achieve with with all the characters, with the exception of Fred Willard's, and he's just a, an ass. But <laughs> but the other people, um, I think you'd have to say that. Yeah, I, I Fred Willard is such a singular performer. I mean, I am I I I think it became very very clear to me in an odd way when he was fired from a PBS job doing a voiceover for a show that was supposed to follow the Antiques Roadshow. And the host of the Antiques Roadshow filled in, who's an excellent television host, a very talented guy, and was doing these sort of jokes and stuff that were written for Fred Willard. And, um, you know, I think Fred Willard had already recorded his tracks. And I remember thinking, wow, this is so wrong without Fred Willard, and I couldn't think of any way you could replicate Fred Willard's Fred Willardiness. Like he is such a remarkable guy on screen. Uh, that's that's true. Um, I met Fred. Uh, wow, long time ago, nineteen sixty nine. We were in the play, uh, and Fred appears in my new show, Family Tree. Um, in the 
the the Chris O'Dowd character comes to America and, and Fred shows up in all his glory in that thing. Uh, so, uh, yes, he's unique. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Christopher Guest. His new TV show on HBO is called Family Tree. It airs on Sunday nights. I think Chris O'Dowd in um, in your new show, Family Tree, is um, is a genuine straight man. Um, and he happens to be a, a very rare thing, which is a straight man that can get laughs. Um, but he's, his character is going on a very real emotional journey in the show. Um, and I, I wonder how you, how you met Chris O'Dowd and how you decided to incorporate him into the show. I went to London about a year ago to meet some English actors. Uh, we, Jim Pettick and I had been working on this uh, idea for already for quite a long time. And I knew what I wanted to find, uh, an actor that was uh, engaging, um, um, funny, and every man in a sense. And uh, when I met Chris, uh, he's very charming. He, he's very funny. And as you say, he can be a straight man, but it's it's almost an illusion because you you think he's being a straight man, but if he weren't funny, then none of it would work. It's not as if in a conventional Abbott and Costello thing, but Abbott didn't have a funny bone in his body. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, or anywhere else, actually. And uh, for Chris, Chris is a funny person and... Uh, it's a much more subtle, trick, trickier thing that he's doing, and he is the emotional core of it, and that's, again, essential for this whole thing. I didn't want to do something that was just uh, sketches of people doing weird things. I wanted it to uh, center around his, his uh, emotional life and at the same time have some funny things. I mentioned that it's um, that it's this guy played by Chris O'Dowd trying to put his life back together after... Um, losing his job and his very serious long-term girlfriend. And I want to play a scene with him attempting to go on a date, his best buddy setting him up on these dates. And um, in this scene, he's talking about genealogy a little bit and and ends up talking about uh, talking about something even more ancient. I didn't mean that anyway. I meant like because dinosaurs, obviously, there's some dinosaurs that still exist, so that would be going back like 10 years or whatever. You know what I mean? Sorry, what? Sorry? Dinosaurs still exist? Mm. Yeah. Well, I know some people still think they don't exist, right? Some people don't think some they... Some people don't, but, right. then, but most people do, I think. Because, I mean, obviously they do because birds are type of dinosaurs, so... Mm-hmm. And, um... And, you know, they still exist in Africa because there's been loads of sightings of dinosaurs in Africa. <laughs> his, his, his reactions are what sell every joke in that scene. It's a, it's a really amazing thing. Mm-hmm. What, what made you start thinking about um, genealogy and, and sort of the relationship between the people that we come from and, and ourselves? Well, I had... Uh been given, when my father died, many, many boxes filled with photographs and uh, other surprises, treasures, which I'm still opening. I was opening them yesterday, in fact. This is now 17 years later, uh, finding new things. Uh, That was really the basis of it, being drawn into things that he'd never told me, which I found curious, and some things I did know. Uh, Diaries from 200 years ago. Um, books, war medals, uh, lead soldiers, military buttons, various things that were fascinating. I had, the family uh, from England have a, an interesting uh, – um, it's quite interesting to, to read about that historically. So uh, that's what motivated this, I would guess. Well, Christopher Guest, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to talk with you. Thank you. Christopher Guest's new show on HBO is called Family Tree. You can catch it on Sunday nights.
Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by our favorite critics to recommend stuff worth your time. This week, we're joined by Mara Eakin and Andrea Battleground from the AV Club. Hey, you two, how's it going? Good, how are you? Great. Um, Andrea, let's start with your recommendation, a new record from Michael Cronin called MC2. Um, and let's hear a little bit of See It My Way from the record. Tell me a little bit about what you like about this record. Well, I was pretty surprised by it, actually. Uh, Michael Cronin has a bit of a garage punk pedigree, and this album, while it still has some of that in it, it's very melodic. It's quickly shaping up. I think it's going to be my kind of go-to album this summer. There's um, a lot of melody happening and a lot of acoustic happening in addition to, you know, the drums and the distorted guitars. But he uses it much more strategically, I think, than he did on his first record. Mara, your, your recommendation is an album that um, it, it just came out, and it's a pretty high-profile record, uh, Vampire Weekend's Modern Vampires of the City. Uh, let's take a listen to the single from the album, Diane Young. You toss aside like a pile of leaves I gotta find some little weeds For five meters run around the bend When the government made surround you again If Diane Young won't change your mind I feel like the storyline with Vampire Weekend, Mara, is that uh, with each new record, and I'm including their first in this, people are waiting for them to take a fall, and, and every time out so far, people have been impressed by their work. Yeah, I really think that for one reason or another, I'm still not entirely clear why, people are really polarized on Vampire Weekend. Like, some people are like, screw those preppies, blah, blah, blah. Um, I really like Vampire Weekend. I've liked them since the first record. Um, I think they're just a fun band. I think they're a smart band. I think they know what they want to do. I mean, you could say, oh, they're ripping off other sounds, but they're not really. Like, they're not ripping. They're not the 95th redux of Joy Division that we're getting from these modern bands. Like, they have their own sound. They have their own thing. And they're a fun band live, and they're a fun band to listen to. Mara Eakin is the music editor of the AV Club. She recommends Vampire Weekend's Modern Vampires of the City. Andrea Battleground is the lead copy editor. She recommends Michael Cronin's MC2. Thanks, guys. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. The story goes that Nick Krill was in the basement of his family home and found some unused song lyrics that were written by his grandfather. They were written out on the back of some Cracker Jack boxes. That's when Nick was inspired to create the Spinto Band. The group released a number of home recordings before their first studio album came out in 2005. Their fourth LP, Cool Cocoon, was released earlier this year. Shake it up. In 2006, the Spinto Band was touring to support their first studio record. Krill says that at the time, he was in a deep musical rut. I was in my early 20s at the time and had spent 
a, you know, a middle and high school kind of digging through rock and roll records and indie rock records, and I sort of had, had reached some sort of plateau of my interest in searching out new music, and I was just happy to listen to the same old 90s Flaming Lips records and stuff like that forever. That's when he heard a song that changed his life from a band whose style was completely new to him. The sound engineer that was touring with us uh, had brought a bunch of DVDs along to pass the time while on the road, and one of the DVDs was the film for uh, the Buena Vista Social Club. I wasn't really familiar with any sort of Latin music at all, apart from sort of uh, J-Lo and that kind of stuff, late 90s Latin music boom. Krill kept going back to one song in particular, Pueblo Nuevo. He says that it completely flipped his perspective on rhythm and composition. I guess I was most struck with this, the crazy sort of playing style of the main piano player on the track. I love how the song starts off spooky. It's got a weird arc. It has this crazy spooky chords right here. And then a nice little... kind of had this crazy way of playing that reminded me of if a piano was on a seesaw going back and forth and and he was his hands were just slinkies falling up and down the keys in this weird kind of almost sometimes haphazard way but always ending up on the perfect notes thing about the song that wrapped me in was just this one kind of quarter note. It may sound silly, but once the main groove of the song starts happening, the background percussion just has this quarter note playing, and the way it matches up with the rhythm of everything else, for some reason, just knocks my socks off. Estimate the quarter note. Sort of uh, got me thinking a lot more about weird percussion and stuff like that. crazy run that's the kind of thing all this little noodling around that's it's almost like a i don't know like a real fast bird flying in loop-de-loops or something like his hands during a lot of this i almost imagine as cartoon characters like his playing has such a personality that i just imagine his hands as little beings jumping around the piano keys record by the Buena Vista Social Club, the, the timbre of the instruments just jumped right out at me. There was a weird sort of slack sound in some of the strings of the instruments. Like they almost sounded like they were extra rubber bandy in a weird way. Um, and that jumped out at me as an interesting characteristic. And then the rhythms were also something I wasn't very familiar with at the time. Um, so these are all sort of musical elements that I'd never really 
thought about before, and this this track and the album kind of opened my ears up to them. on the song that changed his life, Pueblo Nuevo, from the Buena Vista Social Club. The Spinto Band's new record, Cool Cocoon, is available now. You can find them online at spintoband.com. Have you ever put something on Twitter, thought about it, then realized that actually maybe you should delete it? Well, stick around. After a break, I'll talk to novelist Dan Kennedy about that feeling. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, everybody. This is Justin McElroy, and in the rich fiction we just created, the hosts of this podcast have gone for a little pee break. Hi, I'm Travis McElroy. Quick, while they're not looking, slip our comedy in. I'm Griffin McElroy, the baby brother, and stop, I'm the police. What are we doing? This is my brother, my brother, and me, where we take questions and turn them into wisdom and make fun of you. We make fun with you? We make fun with you because English is our second language. Well, now it's getting racist. (laughs) We have... We literally had 25 seconds, and we did racist with it. So wait till you see what we can do with a whole hour on My Brother, My Brother, and Me. We're brothers. We're experts. And we're sorry. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Dan Kennedy worked at a dot-com in the first dot-com boom and at a record company in the waning days of $19 CDs that you bought for two good songs. When he lost those jobs, he wrote a book for the money, which is sort of an all-time first. He also started telling stories on stage with The Moth. 10 or 15 years later, he's the host of The Moth's podcast, a star of their traveling live shows, and he's just published his third book. It's a novel called American Spirit. The protagonist, Matthew, has lost his cushy magazine gig, his marriage is falling apart, and he's living out of his leased BMW, drinking tea laced with crushed-up Valiums, pounding Heinekens, and taking pay-what-you-will crafting classes at the community center. Somehow all of this ends up being kind of life-affirming. Dan Kennedy, welcome to Bullseye. Hey, thanks for having me. How are you, Jesse? I'm, I'm doing okay. I, um, well, I, for one thing, my uh, will to live has been affirmed by your new novel, <laughs> which is about a man who does a lot of horrible things as he stares down the specter of his impending death. Yes, yes. Well, it's kind of, you know, you often think of that phrase, at least I do, that we should be living like it's, you know, our last day, you know. But really, when you take that to heart, you make quite a mess of things. <laughs> um, thematically, I think your book reminds me of your Twitter feed. I'm a big fan of your Twitter feed. It's probably Thanks. my favorite Twitter feed. Thanks. <laughs> and you t- I was looking at it. This is a few tweets th- that you've written. One is, life is like a box of chocolates, dark, confusing to navigate, bunch of weird <laughs> in the middle of it you can't describe, and a gift. That was a, that's a relatively <laughs> optimistic one. This one is, oh, man. the best literally... way to handle having a massive crush on someone is to wait eight years and then see if you still have it. Then wait two more, gone. Yeah, but that one's true. <laughs> like that's just – that literally I just see as a tip for good living because <laughs> that, uh, that, worked, that worked for me in, uh, in 2000. 2000. I wish the way to rock hard abdominal muscles was listening to headphones staring out plane or train windows missing someone. Again – Sensible living, like if we could get that to happen, I sort of see that as like, don't you wish that too? <laughs> like we spend we spend so much time now, I think, on trains and planes, or maybe that's just me projecting what's been going on with me as a universal truth. But I, I always end up, I'm in this instant lonely mode as soon as I get out on the road. And, uh, and yeah, I was just, I just, I tend to think that. I was actually... Uh, yeah, I was. I think I was on a train when I thought that. I mean, the thing that's the weird about the Twitter that I have to say, the Twitter feed, is that it's this thing that, um, A, I shouldn't be doing. 
and <laughs> and and B, like the stuff that crosses my mind at like three a.m. in a hotel, you know, feeling a little lonely, or even at home, like wondering what the hell I'm doing with my life. It's great stuff to type down, but you know, the problem is that other people see it, and and the other <laughs> problem is I. I forget because I'm generally not – I'm not – I don't think I'm the voice that I write in or that I tweet in. I'm I'm generally a pretty normal person. You know, don't ask anyone close to me. But trust me, I'm a normal person. And, uh, and then I meet folks. You know, I meet some of the greatest people and, and uh, you know – It'll be like, oh, hi, nice to meet you. Like, oh, hi, how are you? And it'll be like, oh, I saw the thing you wrote about, you know, death being imminent and how. And it's like, oh, gosh. Oh, I have to take that thing down. Like that, that's something I did never planned on sharing with a nice person that was kind to go to lunch. How are you? It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Dan Kennedy. His new novel is called American Spirit. I uh, read somewhere that you started this novel before you started your last book, Rock On, which, which you were a guest on the show to talk about. And, and that was that book came out four or five years ago. Yeah. Um, was it something that you had been working on all along or something that you uh, put down and picked back up? It's something I put down and picked back up. And, you know, the Ed Park... Um, who, uh, you know, you might, I think you might know Ed, but anyway, he's done McSweeney's stuff, and he was one of the founding editors of The Believer, and he's my editor on this book, and he keeps finding little pieces of information where I started it earlier than I think. Like, he he found this list on McSweeney's that was like a 2004 list where he was like, you're using, you know, you're calling this guy Matthew and saying he drinks in cars. This is the beginning of... (laughs) the thing. And then I talked to someone recently who I was I was telling about the novel and how excited I am about it and they're like what's it called? you know what now it's a guy that lives in his car for a minute cuz he lost his giant this that and the other. and I'm like yeah 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 and they go well that's the thing that you talked about in Seattle on tour in 2003 for Loser Goes First when you were here on book tour and I was like I did and they were like yeah you started the night by talking about that guy and saying that you've just written 10 pages about this new thing. And then it might be your next book. And I was like, oh, kidoke. But, you know, I just constantly felt intimidated by this character. I mean, I would just write, I'd write 2,000 words, look at them and just go, well, I don't, I don't have the life experience to, to write this guy properly at all. Like, it's going to be pretty thin soup if I try to imagine some of the stuff that I'm sketching out here. So I just um, waited like about a decade and most of the stuff happened to me. You know, so I could just kind of sublimate most of it. It's interesting that you're saying most of this stuff happened to you. There's some pretty desperate situations in this book. There's a sad fight. Well, it's sort of sad, then happy fight. Um, For example, have you been in a fight before? No, there's... And it's handy to fall back on saying... I think I, think I fall back on saying most of it happened to me because... I'm kind of, I'm kind of bashful to have uh, written fiction. You know, I, I think I might be a little bit bashful about my license to do it. You know, so I think, I think it's a little sticky to fall back. For me, I keep falling back on saying, "Oh well, most of it happened to me. Most of it happened to me." Um, but no, I have. I gosh, I haven't been. In, that's another example of what would it be like if I got in a fight with this person. You know, it would be hilariously pathetic. I haven't been in a fight since. I don't know when. I mean, it would just be. It, I I violence um, really, really, really depresses me. Like I'm not a huge fan of volatile, explosive situations, and uh, and like people trying to hurt each other really is just like the gateway to severe depression for me. It's like wow, that is the saddest thing I can imagine two people doing, you know. And so I'm totally not a fighter. And Matthew's not a fighter, which you you start to learn when he basically, that's his way of making friends. He makes friends like, he makes friends the way elk make friends in mating season or, or bison, you know, is clearly what that fight was about. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Dan Kennedy. We're talking about what it feels like to put your personal stories out into the world for public consumption. 
Dan Kennedy shares his life on Twitter, on stage for the Moth Storytelling Podcast, and in his new novel, American Spirit. I mean, yes, the book is fictional, but he, he says a lot of the anecdotes kind of, sort of, actually happened to him. Let me ask you this. Uh, the Moth is a huge part of your life, and, um, and of course, it's a, it's a storytelling series. And your first two books were memoirs um, about some of the uh, crazy stuff that, that had happened in your life, uh, up to and including being uh, working on a Fat Joe video. And I wonder if you feel you feel or have managed to control the feeling that you need to be doing something crazy in order to have a life that's worth telling a story about. Yeah, maybe. I think so. I mean, there's, there were two sort of things at work. It's like, um, you know... I got, I got really tired of the responsibility that comes along with nonfiction, you know, in terms of books and, and uh, magazine pieces. There's You're dragging a certain amount of people along with you, you know, into that stuff. They may or may not want to be part of that. You know, I, my, I, one of the things I did is I went back and stayed with my parents for 30 nights in a row at age 40 for GQ magazine. And... Um, I had never stayed at my parents, you know, since I was 19, I'd never stayed there probably more than a night if I ever had stayed there. I usually just stay at a, a motel down the road and visit them. Um, and then it came out and I realized too that like, you know, there were certain things like, God, my mom wasn't ready to like have like a joke written about the way we, you know, drive to the grocery store and what we talk about, you know, she wasn't ready to have that like plopped into a magazine with a photo of her and I and 900,000 people reading it or whatever people, you know, are reading that thing. And I got tired of the responsibility of dragging people through. And I just thought it's going to be a lot more freeing to write fiction. And I think I can touch on some of the stuff I've been doing and also kind of think about what could have happened had I done certain things like, um, like what if I'd been, you know, married with a house when I lost my job at Atlantic records, you know, it would have looked like this. So have you shared your novel with your parents? I, um, I did like sort of just by accident. I, you know, I sent a copy to their house and just said, you know, thanks for, you know, being so cool and everything or whatever, you know, here you go. But I got a call like a week later and it was from my mother, you know, my 70-something-year-old mother said, hey, I just wanted to call you and tell you I started your new book. And my, my <laughs> heart just sort of sank. I was like, um, 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 uh, okay. Um, and so, you know, I, um, it, she was like a really good sport. She was, re she was cracking. She was making more jokes than I could about it, actually. She was like, yeah, so things seems are getting, it seems like things are getting really interesting for you. Uh, how much of this is, you know, and I'm like, oh, she, like she knew she totally had me over the barrel. She was just enjoying every second of it, cracking up. Such a good sport. Amazing. When you write a, uh, you know, a feature article for a glossy magazine about having an experience, I think part of it is supposed to be uh, the lesson that you learned from that experience, um, in addition to the wisecracking and the colorful anecdotes. Mm. Um, and, and I wonder if you were writing an, ar a, an article for a glossy magazine about having written your first novel, if there's any lessons that you could synthesize from the experience. Well, um, it's a lot more fun to be, um, to be peddling, uh, Fiction. I mean, it's a, it's a lot more fun to to be selling a pack of lies <laughs> than uh, than dragging your loved ones through the mud uh, for the sake of a joke. Um, you know, that's the one lesson I've learned, and I've and I've also learned that uh, you know, if you wanna if you wanna tell the truth about what you believe, do it do it through a character's mouth. It's so much easier. I've also learned <laughs> ah, people read these things. Sort of like the sort of like the Twitter feed. You can type 
keep all you want, all your little secrets up to a satellite, but the catch is everyone might be reading. Well, Dan, I, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was awesome talking to you, Jesse. Dan Kennedy's new novel is called American Spirit. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'd like to close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. So at the end of the 19th century, American culture was caught in between. It wasn't an agrarian country anymore, but it wasn't quite an urban one. Cinema brought us a depiction of reality that was somehow more vivid than reality itself. Electricity was turning night into day. The scientific process was just starting to be widely followed, and the knowledge it gave us was just starting to be codified and classified. It was only just occurring to fiction writers that they didn't need to present their novels in the form of a letter or a memoir. Everything was on the line between old and new, real and false, one thing or another. It was a world of liminality. No place boomed in this time of in-betweenness like Coney Island. It was the nature of going to Coney Island that you would encounter strangeness. You would encounter the unencounterable. It was marvelous. I just watched Rick Burns' documentary about that place and time again. It's just called Coney Island. Every time I see it, I find myself newly transported to this moment and location where everything could be anything. What was Coney Island early in the century when it was truly something magical? What could you find? Well, for one thing, there was a hotel shaped like an elephant. You could sleep in the trunk, the body, or the thigh. There were rich people and poor people playing together without distinction for maybe the first time in American history. There were premature babies in incubators, the first of their kind, on display. There were recreations of famous disasters. The Great Chicago Fire burned every night with real flames and fake ones intermingling. There were 450 movies playing at any given time. There were roller coasters, first in the form of mechanical horse rides, the steeplechase, then in more abstract, machine-like forms. There were hucksters, barkers, and conmen of every stripe. It was a display of everything America was and everything America might be. Scary, exciting, amazing, scientific, artistic, true, false. Like one of its great attractions, it was a dreamland. It was a waking dream. These days are clear-eyed and hardened. The future seems kind of like a threat, and there's not much reason to visit the space in between. But I'd say you should take an hour out to watch Coney Island and remember what America was like before you can remember. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Thomas Matisek. Thanks to Noriko Okabe at Argo Studios in New York for engineering help with our Dan Kennedy interview. Thanks to Chris Berube for editing our segment with Nick Krill this week. Interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music is provided by the Go Team, thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries. You can find this show and all our past Bullseye shows for free, downloadable, streamable, whatever you want, at MaximumFun.org. Just click on Bullseye. You can also subscribe to our podcast free in iTunes. The podcast often features longer versions of each week's interviews. Be sure to go to BoatParty.biz if you'd like to join us for the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival. It's happening in September. Also, Mark McGrath of Sugar Ray. If you are listening, you can come to BoatParty.biz for free as my guest. I am serious. I am on NPR right now. Mark McGrath of Sugar Ray, email me, jesse at MaximumFun.org. 
I feel bad that your cruise got canceled. If you're out there and you know Mark McGrath from Sugar Ray, or you know someone who knows Mark McGrath from Sugar Ray, tell him to email me. I want him to come on the cruise. He seems like a nice guy. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.